Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Just before we get to this great episode, I want to extend a special offer to you as a Meet Me in the Kitchen listener. Little Kitchen Academy wants every child to experience what changing lives from scratch really means. So as a special gift to our listeners, you can currently save $25 off enrollment at any Little Kitchen Academy location. Just use the code in the kitchen at checkout and you'll instantly save $25 off enrollment at any LKA location. Again, the promo code to use is in the kitchen. It will only be available for a limited time, so be sure to enroll your child today. So we went and been enrolled in a class and everything about it blew my mind. There were little aspects that I thought were so significant, like not having the parents be in the room, having them be independent, and then having them share the lunch with us that they had made. My boy was so proud to be able to do that. He only went to one class because we live in Maui. And ever since then, he participates in our meals. From that one class, he's more interested. He's more involved. I think it will really lead to a better life for him on many levels. Whether he ever does it professionally or not doesn't really matter. But it teaches him life lessons that are just beautiful. A good kitchen produces good food. But a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy and supported by Birkenstock, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. You've probably heard the saying, if you know, you know. And it certainly applies to the interview you're about to hear with the legendary Shep Gordon. Mention his name to the average person, you might not get a response. But mention the name Shep Gordon to famous musicians, chefs, or to Hollywood's elite, and you're sure to get a reaction, along with a story or two. After being encouraged to get into talent management by the late Jimi Hendrix, Shep embarked on a remarkable career that would see him manage a catalog of celebrated artists including Alice Cooper, Teddy Pendergrass, Kenny Loggins, and Luther Vandross. He then went on, in the words of Emeril Lagasse, to create the celebrity chef phenomenon, turning culinary masters into household names. Now, Shep has spent his life making other people famous, but he is far more than a star maker. He's written a book, produced an award-winning film, and been the subject of a documentary. He's also a philanthropist, a father, and an aficionado of the culinary arts. And that all shines through in this wide-ranging conversation with Chef Gordon, who proves once again that he's more than comfortable in the kitchen. There's so many places, given your legendary career, that we could start, but I'd be remiss if I didn't start with where you are and what Maui has been through in the last six to eight weeks. We all saw what happened this summer. How are things going right now in Maui? It's a tough time here. It's a really tough time here. It's sort of, it's like the perfect storm. The fire opened up large wombs culturally and historically in, in Hawaii. Is, you know, it's a, an island culture that was taken over. So there's always been land disputes, water disputes, but they've always bubbled under the surface. This has brought out a lot of the ugliness, unfortunately, but hopefully that will fight our way through it and become a stronger place for it. It's overwhelming need here. But the thing that's been so amazing is to see 
the support. On the third day after the fires, 19,000 meals a day, hot meals were being distributed, not by the government, who were very helpful, but hard to mobilize in three days. Three days, the community came together, local chefs preparing 19,000 meals a day with the help of Jose Andres. The governor got really involved in housing. There were 20, about 2,200 houses destroyed. And in that particular area of Hawaii, many of the houses were two or three families, two or three jobs for each of the families. So about 10,000 people were without shelter. 2,200 homes with about 10,000 people. And the governor and Airbnb and the hotels all combined. And I believe it was on the eighth day of the event, the shelters were empty. Everybody had housing, which is remarkable, logistically remarkable, economically remarkable. So, you know, there's been some really good signs. They just extended housing for another, I believe, six months for all the displaced people. But it's a tough time. And now choices have to be made about the rebuilding, which brings up all the cultural land water issues that have been bubbling under the surface for years. So it's an angrier time, but hopefully the anger will produce something better for the people here. The one thing I would like to add is there's been some talk about don't come to Maui as a visitor. And I think our biggest problem now is unemployment. Tourism is 51% of the jobs in Maui. There is no tourism, not because the hotels aren't open, but because everyone's been warned not to come. So the best thing you could possibly do is come back to Maui and spend some money. If you're out there wanting to come, you can get reservations in all the restaurants now. Golf, you just go play. All the things that were tough to do before are easy to do now. So come back, have a meal at Mama's and uh, enjoy. Well, anybody who's ever been to Maui would say that it holds a special place in their hearts. I count myself as a part of that. And as you mentioned, the rebuilding is a part of it. And from a distance, that looks like the biggest challenge, but the reparations that you speak of are by far the biggest challenge. You've spent your entire career connecting people, and it seems to be one of your superpowers. In your opinion, though it didn't need to come about in this devastating way, did those conversations, the ones that are being had right now, need to occur for true healing to actually happen? I think so, yeah. I think it's really deep wounds, and, and maybe out of it will come some really good things, and maybe we can really heal and come together as a community. At the base of Hawaii is aloha, which is really loving everyone. So I think as time passes from this incident and as the anger maybe dies down, people will work together to bring the aloha back. That's something you've always been involved in during your time in Maui, and I know going back to 2008, you've had that annual New Year's Eve party to provide the type of meals you speak of that so many more need right now. I imagine this is, to a certain extent, a natural extension of that. What was the impetus for that at the time? We can see the need right now, Shep, but back when you started that, what was the impetus? <laughs> you know, sometimes things get done for the wrong reasons, <laughs> I guess. For many years, I started that New Year's party at my house in 19... 90 maybe. The first party was George Harrison and Willie Nelson playing under my banyan tree. I knew that New Year's Eve, there were a lot of visitors on Maui, didn't have much to do. I wanted to share the love of Maui with my friends who came here to visit and all the musicians who live here felt the same. So we started doing it. And then one year, I just had this feeling that, you know, we've done it now for 10, 15 years. They're great parties, but they really need a reason 
to exist, a bigger reason than just us drinking and having fun. And at that time, I was very active in Tibet Fund, His Holiness's government in exile funding operation. And I went on a trip to Nepal and saw one of the camps that we had sponsored where as the refugees left Tibet and a lot of the people in Tibet, cataracts were taking away their sight and they didn't have the wherewithal to correct it. And cataracts are easily correctable. So Tibet Fund joined with Doctors Without Borders and for $50 a person, we could give people their sight back. So I said, what a great thing to do for the New Year's party. Let me get a few of the monks here from the Buddhist temple. We'll ask people for $50 donation to come in and we'll take a picture of the person getting the operation and send it back to the person who put up the $50 so they could really feel good about their New Year's Eve and having done something great. And I, I got not a lot, but I had three or four millionaires who reacted really negatively. I don't pay to go to parties. People pay me to go to parties. It's $50. And I said to myself that night, you know, I need to do something to filter those people out of my life and out of my parties. And I think what I'm going to do now is make it a pricier event. And people here, we need the food bank was a thing that was close to my heart. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to self-filter. I'm going to start charging a lot of money to come. And if you're one of those people who feels, you know, you don't have to support other people, I don't need you at my party. That evolved. It started at $250. And then last year it was very expensive. But last year we provided 4 million meals to Maui for the year from that one night. I think we've provided about 20 million meals over the years. So I'm really happy about the party, even if it was done for the, maybe a, a negative reason, out of anger rather than out of compassion. But <laughs> Well, that's an interesting evolution of how it's come to be what it is. And even as you describe along the way, finding people that didn't want to serve others and filtering them out in the world of celebrity and musicians and worldwide stars, that must be difficult to do for a lot of people because a lot of people probably get into those professions, Shep, and get swept up the other way, that they're willing to forgive that behavior because they want to be a part of it. Why did you have the sensibility along the way not to be like that? Where does that come from? I don't know. Probably my dad. You know, I give him a lot of credit for silently showing me a path of life that was compassionate, by example. So I think of him a lot when I'm doing these kind of things. How did he do that? Just in the way he conducted his life. He was kind to everybody. He was compassionate to everybody. He, he had no resources, so he couldn't do the kind of things that I'm able to do because resources can help you. But just the way he lived his life, he was kind to everybody. He helped anybody who needed help in any way he could. Never made fun of anyone was an amazing example for me. You know, I think about him every day. What a wonderful gift that he was able to give to his son. I know you have a young son. What values would you like him to take from you? You know, I had a beautiful day yesterday. Yesterday was spend the morning in class with your son or your child and the teacher. It was the first time doing that with them. And as we were leaving, one of his friend's fathers came over and introduced himself. And he said, hi, I'm Shep. And I said, no, no, I'm Shep. And he said, no, no, I'm Shep. So his name actually is Shep. There's two Sheps, which is unusual. And then he said, we were driving to school today. And my son said, you're going to be my friend, Benjamin. He's the kindest person I know. And that's a three-year-old. So if that can stay, I will feel like I have done my job. I don't know if you can teach kindness. 
You can maybe teach it by example. I don't know if you can teach it by words. I just don't know. Such an abstract path of life. Can you teach service? Because most of your life has been dedicated to service. I think you can teach service. Yes. But whether you can teach being of service because you truly feel it or because you think it's the right thing to do or because you've been taught it, I don't think it matters if you're of service. Whatever the reason you're there is beautiful. But I think people get to it in different ways. You know, I've only been to the academy once. It was one of the things that I really loved was seeing these kids in the most abstract way to learning service to the beauty of ingredients and food. And they're definitely being of service when they're standing at their things, chopping and doing things, even though it's fun for them in a game, it leads to being of service. You know, feeding someone is probably the highest order you can do. I know I was able to cook for the Dalai Lama and one of the monks told me that that's the most important position in their world is the person who cooks because he feeds the Dalai Lama. And I think that, you know, one beautiful thing about the academy is teaching these kids that they really can affect the path of their lives. You know, you don't have to go to McDonald's to get happy. I perhaps want to revisit cooking for the Dalai Lama, but I do want to specify the academy you're speaking of is Little Kitchen Academy, because with you, the academy could mean the Academy Awards and it could mean the Academy of Motion Pictures. Oh, no, no, no. No, the Little Kitchen Academy has been, I mean, I'm really thrilled to do this because I want to be a cheerleader. It's so beautiful and so important. There's so many levels to it. On the surface, it's fun. It's a great way for the kids to learn things and interact with their families in a different way. Not just sit down and eat the meal, but really interact during that whole time period. But there's so many levels to it. Appreciation of, of life at really the simplest level. It's really beautiful. I just, I loved watching it. I, I haven't seen all the ages. The young kids that I saw were beautiful. I mean, it was just, just gorgeous. And I serve on the Culinary Institute of America board. And I'm sure, you know, I could see those kids like moving almost like the chart of the gorilla to the human. <laughs> I could see the path of so many of these kids ending up at something like the Culinary Institute. What better than to feed people? And what better services there in life than to feed people? Very well said. How did Little Kitchen Academy first come into your orbit? I have a friend of mine who is the CEO of Birkenstock, and he sends me shoes for Benjamin for my little boy. And he knows my passion for the culinary arts. And he said, hey, I'm involved with this thing. You should go see it if you're in LA or Canada. So I was in LA and my favorite dumpling place in the world is in Century City, Din Tin Fung. <laughs> so when he said it was in Century City, I said, oh my God, I can go get dumplings. <laughs> so we went and Ben enrolled in a class and everything about it blew my mind. There were little aspects that I thought were so significant, like not having the parents be in the room, having them be independent, and then having them share the lunch with us that they had made. My boy was so proud to be able to do that. He only went to one class because we live in Maui. And ever since then, he participates in our meals. From that one class, he's more interested. He's more involved. I think it will really lead to a better life for him on many levels. Whether he ever does it professionally or not doesn't really matter. But it teaches him life lessons that are just beautiful. And watching him chop with a knife, he was so proud to turn on his mixing machine. Really empowered him. Given how 
much you put into hosting for others and what that means to you personally, that must have been the cherry on top for you at the end of the class, the community table, and all of those children sitting together and sharing their meals together in community. In community and purposeful on a bamboo table made from spare parts. Everything was purposeful. So even if they didn't realize it at the moment, those are the kind of things that seep in. So am I talking about my dad's example? Those are the subtle things that seep in, putting the shoes back in the little place, the Birkenstocks, empowered with their cooking jackets. Just really was really beautiful and had an amazing amount of innocence, which a lot of times in classrooms you don't come across. And the innocence is still there. You've had a gift over the course of your career for seeing what is possible for artists, for chefs, for different creators before they end up becoming worldwide phenomenons in many of those cases. You've seen the magic and just describe what you've seen at Little Kitchen Academy. What do you believe that Little Kitchen Academy is capable of? Oh, I think it's a gigantic force in, in a lot of ways. You know, there's so many issues around feeding people. I mean, as the population explodes, it becomes even more and more critical that people learn how to grow their own foods, learn what they're eating, learn how to prepare things. It's not just about going to a store and buying a box of potato chips. We really can solve a lot of our world problems, I believe, through conscious eating and conscious growing and conscious living and service. And nothing teaches you service more than cooking and serving the meal after. It hits all the points for me that are important. One of the things that came into my mind when I was there was when I first started working with chefs, Emeril Lagasse was one of my first ones. And the first thing we did in the commercial world to monetize them was we made up Emeril spices and he would go bam and throw the spices in. And it worked very well. Our biggest seller of the spices was a school lunchbox at Walmart for the kids to take to school with some of the spices in it. Because the viewership at the Food Network when it first started was a lot of kids, 8 and 10 and 12-year-old kids who would watch the Food Network. So there's always been that connection. It's just nobody's really taken advantage of it. And no one's given it a purpose and a sense. So you know, when I went to the academy, I said, this is so amazing. Because if you can start a person young, understanding how to make his life better through diet and sustainability and the environmental impact, all the pieces that they're teaching, we can make a much better planet, which we need to do. Well, and you mentioned something that's really important, I think. It's that osmosis that occurs in that environment that they've created at Little Kitchen Academy, because children don't have these guardrails or barriers to what is possible. They think everything is possible. So when they see a living food wall growing indoors, that doesn't strike them as odd. That strikes them as something that anybody could do anywhere in the world. And pick their own stuff and then eat it. And they really get to see how connected it all is. The line between that basil and them is not that gigantic. They both need water. They both need food. They both need sun. They need all the same things. They're born, they die. They're part of the life cycle. You obviously have a passion and a deep love for cooking. How did that develop? My journey was really different. I was always a macaroni and ketchup kind of guy. <laughs> Make big buckets <laughs> and the Sara Lee cheesecakes. <laughs> that was sort of my life. And then in the 70s, I was very lucky. I won the Cannes Film Festival. And I got taken to a restaurant 
And I met the chef who owned the restaurant, who turned out to be the first five-star Michelin chef in the world, Chef Roger Berger, but I didn't know it at the time. And when he walked in the room, I got this feeling over myself that this was the man who could show me the path to be happy. I was very happy every minute of the day, but I knew that I was headed for a crash. I was living in a really fast lane. I was managing a lot of big artists. I just won the Con Festival, had a nightclub. Drugs were everywhere. I was definitely headed for a crash. And I didn't know how to stop it because I was having such a good time. Every minute was so fantastic. And then this gentleman walked in the room and for some reason I said, he's got the key to unlock my happiness. And I went over to him and told him that because I was pretty drunk at the time. And he didn't speak a lot of English, didn't really understand me, but allowed me to be a part of his life for a moment. I went to Bangkok with him and went to the dinners that he was cooking. And as a desire to get close to him, he said, you know, if you really want to spend time with me, my language is cooking. Do you know how to cook? And I know. And he said, well, if you learn how to cook, you can work with me and spend some time. So he gave me names of some cooking schools. I went to both cooking schools the next year. And that started our journey. And for the next 25 years, we'd spend probably a month of the year together. He would take me on a journey somewhere where he was cooking in Bangkok or we'd go tour champagne and he let me into his life. And once I started to immerse myself in his way of life, which was the culinary arts, I found my passion. I never really had it for music or film. I would never put on an album just to put on an album. But when I found cooking, I found what I enjoyed. I could cook 20 hours a day and be really happy. So that was my journey. And then I wanted to pay him back. And through that journey, I realized that the culinary arts were almost considered like, you know, waiters or busboys. There was no separation between the chef and anyone else. They didn't realize what great artists they were. And I had the skill set to make people famous. So that was when I started. I put together about 100 chefs, Wolfgang Puck and Nobu and everybody, and we decided to get famous. <laughs> well, it worked out extremely well. And it's kind of come all the way back in an interesting way to connect us because one of those chefs down the road, Kat Cora, is involved with Little Kitchen Academy. And it does seem like a nice circle of life in that respect as well. There are a number of elements based on that answer that I want to get to. But one of them is this. What is cooking for you right now in the present? I cook a lot. I probably cook three, four nights a week. I really enjoy doing stuff I haven't done before. Last night I made a mushroom pasta that had a little bit of tomato paste in it. It was unusual. It was nice. And my boy is an adventurous eater, so I can make stuff for him. But I just love the journey. That's sort of my life is putting together dinner parties here and getting people who don't, maybe don't know each other together, trying to have some interesting conversations and enjoy a good meal. And for me, it's service. The question I always ask is, what do you like to eat? And then I cook to that rather than taking them on my highway. I'd much rather see where they want to go. That doesn't surprise me for a second because you are about service and you have made a career based on others, whereas some people want someone to come into their home so that they can show them what a great chef they are. You're concerned with your audience and that truly is service. Where does that motivation for service, where does that perhaps sense of obligation for service come from, Shep? It came from that chef. 
I really didn't understand service at all. I mean, I was doing it in a way, but I wasn't doing it consciously. And again, he was very much like my father. He never would say to me, do this, do that, do this. But by example, I could see the things that he did were always of service and compassionate. He would always ask if I was bringing people to dinner, which I did quite a lot. What did they like? You think they'd like a leg of lamb? Always wanted to know what made them happy. There was a, a moment with him, I think it was one of the searchlight moments in my life. It was maybe the second or third year we had, that we're spending this month together. He would always choose the restaurants. We would go to his friend's restaurants. And one night our event went late and his friend's restaurant closed. So we had to go just to any restaurant. We walked in off the street. The maitre d' knew who Verger was. You could see the place changed a little bit. And we got the meal and I didn't enjoy the meal at all. I, I ate maybe half of my plate and he ate his whole thing. We could see the chef looking out the kitchen door once in a while. And he took my plate and he finished my plate. And we went outside and when we left, I said, you know, Mr. Verger, could you tell me what you found in that that was so exciting that you wanted to have my plate also? Because I couldn't find anything in it and I'm trying to learn, you know, what was it? And he said, oh, chef, it was horrible. And I said, well, Mr. Verger, if it was horrible, why did you eat my plate? And he said, you know, chef, the chef, he was looking. And if he saw plates come back with food on it, he would have a miserable night. And I didn't wake up this morning to make him miserable. I can eat a little bit of bad food. And it was this sort of light bulb went off. And it's not about you. Get off that chef. It's about service. And he was happy as could be, even though he had a bad meal. He was happy as could be because he fulfilled what he could do as a human. Yeah, that, that was a transformative moment for me. I imagine it was. And just to play off that, quite honestly, that's the reason we called this podcast Meet Me in the Kitchen, because that's where every great dinner party ends up. And also, when you invite somebody into your home, when you invite them into your kitchen, when you invite them to your table... That's an intimate experience. And just hearing you describe it, Shep, I wonder, if is that your love language? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's really well put. I never thought about it like that, but that is, I'm not as physical as other people. You know, it doesn't express itself. That's really where I can express my love fully and unabashedly and without any kind of thinking about who I am or any of those things, the luggage that comes along with all that stuff. For me, I jump into the food and it's about making people happy. Well, I've heard Mike Myers and others say that everyone ends up in Maui in Shep's kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> he is obviously on that list. So this is a perfect time for me to ask you the question we ask every single person on this podcast. Shep, what is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? I would say canned tomatoes, Marzano tomatoes, the Italian tomatoes, because I can always make anything good you know, I could use a little garlic, I could use a little, but even if I get a piece of fish that maybe is a day or two old, if I put it in a tomato sauce and bake it and throw a couple other things in with it, if I'm running late, those tomatoes, I can make a pasta sauce in a minute. It just seems to fit into, even my brisket, when I make a Jewish brisket, I use canned tomatoes in the brisket. So for me, that's sort of a magic. It's sweet without sugar. And it just covers up any mistakes you sort of make on anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
Well, I guess you partially answered my next question then, because as you said, you always want to know what others want to eat in your home. If someone is cooking for you, which has happened many times over, what type of food does Shep Gordon want to eat when he goes to dinner? You know, I like anything that's good. I'm not a big butter guy. I have a few things that I'm not big on, but I can eat. But if someone asks me, I usually say I'd rather not have cream, not have butter. Other than that, I like just about everything. I love ethnic foods. I love Jewish cooking. My wife made a tangine the other night, Moroccan. I, I love all the, the side fills. During the COVID pandemic, I focused on Chinese. I made that my mission. I got a big wok, one of those great woks where you put the water in it and you stir. <laughs> it's a whole other way of cooking. It's really physical. For any of you that haven't done wok cooking and if you enjoy cooking, it's really interesting. It's a very different approach and really healthy. It's all in the preparation and it all happens fast. Wok cooking is really, you have to be on your game. It's like being a quarterback in a football game. And you have to really be on your game and be prepared and know the plays. And there's no time to lose. But for me, it was really exciting. I always love Chinese food. Maui, we don't have any Chinese food. So if you ever get over here, I can whip you up a little egg drop soup and shrimp Cantonese and <laughs> a little lo mein. That sounds wonderful. I am going to accept that invitation at the earliest opportunity. I can tell you that right now. And you've actually piqued my curiosity and inspired me because I have not done that type of cooking, but we actually grew five color Chinese peppers in our garden for the first time this year. And it's been a wonderful experiment. So I need to try this, Chef. You should try it. It's really fun. It's a very different meditation completely. A very different meditation. If you enjoy cooking, it's really enjoyable. As we've touched on a couple of different times during this conversation, for most of your career, you were the man behind the people that you helped turn into celebrities or those who encountered fame. Because of that movie that Mike Myers made, Supermensch, you have now encountered a new level of fame, something that you didn't really want for most of your career. How have you dealt with that? You know, it's been really rewarding. The fame is at a level where it's not obtrusive. The only people that really ever recognize me are the people who really are deep into the culture of either the music business. So it's not like, you know, if I go to a restaurant with Mike Myers, there's 40 people taking pictures. If I go to a restaurant with my son, I may have one person on the way out who says, oh, I think, are you from Supermensch? And it's brought an amazing amount of situations where I can be of service in a way that's much easier for me. You know, when you manage someone, it's a lifelong sort of commitment, at least it was for me. It's a 24-7, you take on all the problems. Whereas since the thing, I'll get a, an email or something from someone that wants to talk about, like there's a, a woman who reached out to me last week. She has three kids who are, have a gospel group and they're making some noise. They had a number 10 album and stuff. And she needs some advice on getting to the next step. So I can jump in, be of service to her, but not have to unpack the valise and live with it, which is really nice for me at my point in my life. It's been a great experience. And I can't wait for those of you that haven't seen it. The last scene of my documentary is a documentary made by Mike Myers about my life. And it's really his story of my life, not mine. But through it all, he could feel in me this desire to have a child. And the last scene in the movie, I'm walking down the beach and you hear a voiceover that says, you know, I may have one squirt left in me <laughs> and I have a three-year-old boy. So he was the squirt. 
I can't wait. I just want to live long enough to show him the documentary when he can understand it. <laughs> I tried to name him Squirt, but my wife would not have any part of that. <laughs> no, I imagine she wouldn't. That is great. What an excellent story. That's fantastic. Jeff, I hope you take this as a compliment because you seem like an ordinary person who's lived an extraordinary life. I appreciate that, yeah. I say that in an extremely complimentary way. I understand an extraordinary life makes you an extraordinary person, but you're very human. You're very relatable. And you've been able to maintain that through all of the fame. And as you described earlier, you got to live a life that many people think they want and they aspire to, but that's not what truly made you happy. As you look back at that extraordinary career, what are those moments and those memories that are actually truly meaningful to you? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think doing my New Year's Eve event, probably the most important thing I do in my life because it feeds so many people who need it. So I'm really thrilled that I can do that and have the friends who help me with it. Alice getting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was a gigantic moment of a life well spent. Nice to get a little recognition. Having Benjamin, amazing. I was blessed to have four kids that I raised who were doing good. That's some really nice moments. And and I think <laughs> making my first really good Chinese meal, I probably was as happy as I've ever been in my life, <laughs> which is maybe a little petty and boring, but what a thrill. That was really the first cuisine where I said, I'm going to learn this and really had the time and dedication to do it. And, but I, I've been pretty lucky. Almost every day I have something that I can really feel good about. Well, as you mentioned earlier, it was Roger Verge who unlocked the key to happiness for you. So when he did that, and to this day, what makes you happy? You know, it changes. It really changes. I don't know if everybody's life is the same, but as I get older and so many of my friends around me I've lost, what makes me happy right now is actually going through a day without any problems. I would say that makes me the happiest, very selfishly. You know, at least I see in my life that as I get older, I spend more time maintaining myself physically, mentally, as opposed to the 30s, 40s, 50, where it was about getting as much of everything, you know, as much experience, as much love. It was about excess in everything. Now it's really the simple, you know, it's waking up, being able to walk. I've always had back issues. Haven't had that in a while. You know, being able to go to the refrigerator and have a good meal. They're really simple things. As I get older and older, it gets simpler and simpler, the things that really make me joyous. I was going to say that must be problems on a personal level because it does seem to me that your role in all of this is to help others solve their problems. And that's something that does seem to bring you a lot of joy as well. Yeah. Yeah. I spend most of my time on that these days. There's a lot of problems out there. <laughs> Yeah. There sure are. I asked you about being happy. Your career has been by any metric successful, but I get the sense that success isn't a simple thing to you. How do you personally define success? That's funny because I think I would say happy and compassionate. If you can be happy and maintain your compassion, all the rest of it is sort of nonsense. 
I think, you know, our society has made it so dependent on external things, which we all see, you know, the most successful people in the world kill themselves or hurt themselves or check themselves into rehab. Whereas you go to, you know, Italy and out on a farm and the guy digging up the field is so happy. So uh, happy to me is really the key. Because, you, you know, we die. We, we all die. It's pretty simple. You're right. And to your point a minute ago, there do seem to be a lot of problems out there. And yet the simplest of solutions, something that I think you can relate to, sitting around a table together, enjoying food, is probably the gateway to solving most of those problems. If we can sit down and see how similar we are, as opposed to the divisiveness that currently exists in society. It really struck me again at the academy, seeing the kids sitting at the table, eating excited about their food instead of eight screens watching different violent videos, which is what you see when you go to dinner with most kids. I'm guilty of it myself. A lot of times I'll let Ben watch his video. But what a joy to see them all sitting there at something they created that they were proud of and talking about it and excited to show it to their parents. And you can really change the course of their lives. I promised I would ask about it again. So how does sitting at that table that you just described compare to sitting at a table with the Dalai Lama? That's a tough question. I would say I'd rather be at the table with the kids than almost anyone. But if there was anyone, the Dalai Lama might be the one. (laughs) Although I never really... Trying to think, I don't think I've ever really eaten with them. I haven't. I've always just served them as meals. I've never actually eaten uh, with them. I get the sense that he would fit in at that same table at Little Kitchen Academy that you did. Oh, he would love it. Oh my God, that would be the dream of his life. He loves kids. He loves his food. Interesting is his food journey, like everybody's food journey is so different. When I cooked for him, I assumed it was going to be vegetarian. And not at all. It was beef stew at five in the morning spaghetti and meatballs. He liked heavy foods. A great message, as you said earlier, you got to ask people what they want instead of assuming what they want. Yeah. One of my first faux pas with His Holiness, I always wanted His Holiness to meet Roger Verge. So with that as the background, I sort of had a selfish motive. Motives always end up surfacing at some point. So anyway, I had this selfish motive. So I put together a benefit for His Holiness in New York at the opening of the W Hotel. And it was a dinner with Roger Verger, Nobu, Jean George, Emeril. I can't remember his name, but from Australia, there's this amazing sushi guy who's all of their heroes. He came in and one or two other chefs. So I had the creme de la creme of chefs. Everybody wanted to meet His Holiness, you know, so everybody jumped in. And I had only been cooking for His Holiness for maybe a year, year and a half, and I had only been to three places with him. So I knew what I was doing, but it was still new. And I woke up in the middle of the night about a week before the event and said, oh my God, the dinner starts at 6.30. His Holiness doesn't eat after five. I now have Nobu. I have all these guys thinking, the way that I pitched it to them was, you're going to be able to feed the Dalai Lama, your food is going to be in his stomach. So it's like, oh my God, now what do I do? He doesn't eat after five o'clock. So uh, I called his representative up. I never called him up. I called and I explained the problem that I had and that I really screwed up and it was sold out. 
was there any way at all I could get him to drink six cups of broth? Because he would drink broth after five. And they said, yes. So I went back to the chefs and everybody made a broth. And I got saved. <laughs> you always find a way. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. But he was so amazing. You know, you become a legend usually for a reason. I don't know in other religions. There's nobody in, there's no character in the Jewish religion, in the Catholic religion, maybe the Pope relates to it. With the Dalai Lama, you have this feeling of, although he's in a human body, his consciousness is so much bigger than any human that I've ever experienced. And it's hard for that to manifest. So, But it always did with him. So, for example, that night, I'm now feeling so horrible because all they're doing is broth. But at least I wanted to meet him. So he had Secret Service, who can be very tough. I'm holding his hand, and we're walking into the W, and the kitchen door is over to the right. I don't say where the kitchen is, but I say to the Secret Service, we're going to go in and take a picture with the chefs. And they say, no, you're not. And I said, well, I promised the chefs we're going to take a picture. Sorry, no picture. We're going to the table. And we take about four more steps, and His Holiness looks at me and says, what's that? And I said, kitchen door. He said, oh, we go. (laughs) (laughs) We go where they're all cooking. And he said, come, come, come. We take a picture. (laughs) Saved again. Saved again, man. But that was a remarkable thing. He's the only person I think in my life that I've ever seen really had that sixth sense. It's happened four or five times with them where people around him would say no. He had no idea of what we were even talking about, but he just knew. He just knows. He's He's remarkable. I was very lucky. But he, he would love going to one of those kids' cooking classes. He would have the best time. Oh, my God. That's where he wants to be. In that pool of innocence is where he would love to live his life. That's wonderful. And I do feel compelled to ask, as we finish up, who would you most want to have a meal with right now? Uh, my dad. I can understand that. He's obviously had a tremendous impact on your life. You've had such a tremendous impact on so many. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for choosing to be a part of this. Shep, mahalo. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Aloha. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 